John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. And our sermon for today is Love Like the Servant. Love Like the Servant. Last week, uh, during the service, I, I made a statement that I don't know how many people, if you've thought about this or categorized um, things like this before, but, but here's what I said. I said, the two main ways that we serve God is by encouraging other Christians in Christ and uh, introducing non-Christians to Christ. Those seem to be the two main ways. Again, you can kind of see that with all the relationships you have, that if they're a Christian, you encourage them in Christ, that that should be the main thing you're doing. And if they're not a Christian, you're trying to introduce them to Christ, that they might see the glory of Christ and trust in Christ. And and you say, "Uh, is that really it? Well, think about it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, there's, there's a reason that you're encouraging her. That's supposed to, what the relationship is supposed to be about. You think about your, your co-workers. You think about uh, family members. You think about friends. You think about neighbors. And the absolute best thing you can do for them and for God's glory is to point to, to encourage them in Christ. What he has done, what he has promised to us, those who believe, those who obey him. And so I, I was thinking that through, and, and I was like, okay, so if, if our main service to God, and by the way, service to God comes after we behold the glory of God, right? Behold his glory, grow in him, and go reflect his glory. That's our, our mission statement. So we, we behold the glory of the Lord, we, we are, are so enthralled by, by his glory that we want to serve him, and so we say, okay, the two main ways I need to do this is by encouraging other Christians in the Lord and by uh, uh, leading other Christians uh, to know the Lord. And, and so I was thinking through what do we need? What, what, what tools has Christ given us to accomplish these tasks? And we actually talked about that last week, didn't we? That, that God gave gifts to men. That is, he gave all of us the, the, the tools that we need uh, to, to accomplish his will, to serve him well. And then he gave uh, people like evangelists and pastor teachers to then equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is, to give instruction and practical skills and abilities to carry out those tasks. And so, as I was thinking this through, what do we need to, to encourage other believers? And I think uh, the Bible is, is very clear about at least one main ingredient we need to encourage other believers and, and, and introduce people to Christ. And that is love for one another. When I say love for one another, I am not talking about uh, the more general love, love your neighbor as yourself. I think of love your neighbor as yourself as love whoever comes in your path. It doesn't matter if they're a Christian, a Muslim, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You, you love your neighbor as yourself. And that, by the way, was shown by the story of the Good Samaritan. So a Samaritan helping a Jewish man and they were enemies. And that would be another category, by the way, of people that we should love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, I think 44, if I remember correctly. But 
There is a special place and a special purpose for love between believers. Love for one another. And the Bible is just covered with this command, with this encouragement. Love your brothers. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. You have all these things that we are to love one another. And and what I realize and, and what I want to show you today is that by loving one another, that is one of the main tools Christ has given us to both encourage believers and introduce non-believers to Christ. Let me show you that real quick. This was last week's passage, by the way. Uh, Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. This is talking about within the body of Christ. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head into Christ." From whom the whole body, that's the whole church, and then even the little churches within that, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's right. So love for one another is one of the main vehicles through which we will grow, through which we will build one another up. So this this love for one another is so important for one of the two main acts of service that we can possibly do for God. Then the second act of service is uh, that that we want to introduce other people to Christ, to, to persuade them, to show them the gospel of Jesus who bore their sins, and that by faith they can have salvation And we see this in John 13, which we're going to read the whole thing in just a moment. But I want to show you this. John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You say, okay, well, they'll know that I'm a disciple. I I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at there, that they'll just know you're a disciple. Like, so if we love one another, we don't ever have to say, hey, I'm a Christian. They'll just know it. Do you think that's what Jesus is saying there? No, I think what Jesus is saying is they will know that you're, you're truly a disciple, that you're a truly transformed person, a person transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son, A person who was dead but is now alive, they will see that, they will know that by your love, not just for the whole world, not just for your enemies, but even our love for one another, even especially by our love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 17, 21, in the context of this sort of love, Jesus says that we do this so that the world may believe that you, God the Father, have sent me that they believe that i'm truly god the son the messiah in verse 23 it says similarly so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them that is christians even as you loved me so love for one another is incredibly important and let me just say this I I see how we interact, and you guys have great love for one another. But I'm actually encouraged in this sermon by by Paul, who over and over in his letters commends the Christians for the love that they have for one another. And then he says later in his letter, or even right there, grow all the more in your love 
for one another. And so that's what I say to you guys today is I see your love. I see that you have been regenerated. I see that the love of Christ has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. According to Romans 5, that is true, and I see it with my own eyes. But we all need to grow in love for one another more and more, to excel in this, to outdo one another in showing honor. And so, if this is so important, I mean, this is, this is I mean, where the rubber hits the road. Like, okay, I want to serve God, and here's how I do it, by encouraging Christians and by introducing people to Christ and if love for one another is how I do that, then, then I'm, I really need this. <laughs> Jeff really needs this. All of you really need this. And so what I think is that we need to go to the school of Christ. I mean, he, he calls himself teacher, and his, his disciples called him teacher. Jesus was a teacher. I mean, he was much more than a teacher, right? He was the Messiah. He's God the Son. But he was a teacher. And so let's sit in the school of Christ today, the school of Jesus and learn how we can love one another, both practically, what attitudes we need to have, and powerfully. How, how can I possibly do that? So let's read this together in John chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17, and then repeat verses 34 and 35 that I read earlier. I'm kind of skipping some verses in between. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come... To depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the, devil, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example, an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Then skipping down uh, to verse 34 and uh, 35, Judas, by the way, has now left the room. 
on his uh, path to betray Jesus. Picking up in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's God's word. Let's pray together and ask him to bless the the study of his word. Father God, I praise you that I stand in a room filled mostly with believers. And I praise you that you have poured your love into their hearts and that I get to see that and experience that myself, God, the love we have for one another. But Lord, I do not shrink back from asking for more because this is such an important task you have given us. This is such an important tool you have given us to fulfill this this service to you, God, of building up one another in love and of strengthening our witness by our love for one another. So God, I ask that you would continue to do the supernatural work you've been doing in the lives of those who have been born again by the God who is love. Continue to help us to look upon your glory and your majestic display of love and to just fall in awe and wonder and let that propel us to love one another, Lord, for your glory, for the good of others, and our deep joy in you, Lord. I pray all this in in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've now seen from Jesus two things. This new command I give to you that you love one another. By this, all the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And just before he says that, he gives this amazing display of love for his own, for his followers. I guess, uh, you know, Judas was in that room. He was uh, in there, but again, I'm mostly focusing on the 11 faithful disciples. And so what what I want to do uh, in this sermon is first see um, what that love looks like. Because the world calls many things love that the Bible would not call love. Not, not, not the true love that a person would have for one another. And so we need to see how, how Jesus would define it, how Jesus did define it with his actions, with his words. And then after that, I want to show us the power. But first, what does this love look like? This is uh, number one, sitting in the school of Jesus. Love is genuine. Love is genuine. When I say love is genuine, I'm saying that love truly seeks the best interest of the recipient of our love rather than just seeking our own best interests. You say, well, what are you talking about? No, I think we all know this from our own experience. We can say things that are quote-unquote loving. We can do acts of kindness and service toward people but it not actually be loving toward that person. It actually be seeking our own self-interest. You say, really? Yes. In the English language, we have many words for this. We have 
flattery, right? That, that, that's that's uh, tell, giving someone compliments that may not be true, but you're just doing it to get on their good side. Flattery. We have partiality. Partiality would be showing favoritism to a certain class of people. James talks about having the poor man come into your church and you say, oh, go, go sit over there on the floor. But to the rich man, you say, oh, well, here, here's a nice seat for you. Let me wipe this thing down for you. The, the sound, the acoustics right here are perfect. You'll love it. It's like, well, that's interesting that you treat the poor man and the rich man differently. What's going on with partiality is, well, you know the, the poor person can't give you anything, so you don't bother showing them love. But then when the rich man comes in, the person who you might profit from comes in, all of a sudden, oh, here's the seat. I've kept it warm for you. That's not love. That's partiality. So there are many ways we can do this, that we are disingenuous with our words, with our actions of love. And really what we're doing is not trying to love and seek the best interests of that person. We're seeking our own best interests. I mean, I, I can think of all sorts of examples of this. I think of the, the child who uh, sucks up to their teacher in hopes of their grade going up, right? That's why there's apples on the desk. I, I'm sure some kids really love their teachers. I love some of my teachers. Others, I was nice to because I just <laughs> didn't want to fail or get in trouble or whatever. That's not true love, though. I already talked about being extra nice to a rich person in hopes of gaining some sort of uh, uh, possession or, you know, uh, item from them, or maybe they'll share with you. I don't know what we think exactly there. Maybe uh, when the boss is around, we're extra nice to the other employees around us, hoping that maybe we'll get the promotion or a raise. Or maybe even the, the, the husband or wife who's extra nice because they've done something bad. And they just don't want their punishment to last as long. They want to get out of the doghouse with their spouse. And even that, I would say, is not true love. And again, this isn't just me. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, the ESV doesn't word it this way, but most other translations do. Love does not seek its own or seek its own benefit, the NASB says. Love does not seek its own benefit. That is not what love is. That's not genuine love. And so... By definition, true love is looking to fulfill the great needs and, and, and interests of the beloved, the recipient of your love. Now, you say, man, why is, why is Pastor Jeff bringing this up with Jesus' act of love? I'll, I'll tell you why. is because I'm, I'm a bit cynical. I'm a bit jaded at times because I, I see this disingenuous love all too often amongst people. I mean, I think you all have seen this, by the way. You can just tell they're faking it, that they're trying to get something out of it. One of the best ways to know, by the way, is if they don't get the thing that they want, if they don't get the applause, if they don't get the return from the rich person, if they don't get a position, they stop loving and they're, they're kind of angry about it. It wasn't true love. They were, they were seeking their own. Uh, that happens a lot. So when I, I see Jesus do this unbelievable act of washing his disciples feet there, there's this thing that goes off in my head i say is it real now bear with me here uh, if i actually charge him with this i'm 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 treading on blasphemy okay but i think it's okay for us to ask these questions if we're truly seeking uh to to know uh, reality 
But I say, is Jesus, you know, just, just trying to, to make his disciples think of him fondly when he leaves, right? He's about to leave this world. He's about to go to the cross. This, by the way, was done the night that Jesus was betrayed. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't that put a weight to all of this? Was, was Jesus just trying to be like, you know what? I'm about to leave, so I'm going to be extra nice today. <laughs> so that they'll think fondly of me. I don't want to be missed when I'm gone. Right? When we leave a place, we want to be missed. We want to have left an impression. Maybe that's what Jesus was doing. We, you know, we, is that what he was doing? Or maybe Jesus was just trying to shame his disciples. We'll get into this more later, but they had just been arguing about which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom of God. And none of them bother to wash each other's feet or even their Lord and teacher's feet. Is Jesus just trying to shame them? It looks loving. By the way, we do this. We do an act of love just to shame the other person of like, I did this, but you did not. Hmm. Is that what Jesus is doing? Thank you. <laughs> no, he is not. <laughs> Jesus is not doing that. Again, it would be blasphemy to charge Jesus with these things. But how do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is deep, genuine love, truly seeking the best interest of the beloved? We see that in the very first verse. Look at your Bibles. This, by the way, is John narrating under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says there, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's two statements there at the, the, the close of that verse. <clears throat> having loved his own who were in the world. What that means is, I mean, at the very least, from the moment of his, his incarnation, or at the very least from the moment of his ministry and choosing of the disciples, he loved them. They're in, they're in the world, they're, they're sinful, they're confused, they're, they're, they're weak and frail. Jesus has to rebuke them for lacking faith, but he loved them. Past tense, he had loved them that entire time. And then the second statement, it says... He loved them to the end. That, by the way, is both uh, quantitative and qualitative. He loved them to the end, that, that is, to, to the end of his, his time. But it's also, that word, by the way, in Greek is telos. Many of you recognize that word, telos. And it means to the limit, to the uttermost. He loved them as much as he, God the Son, in the flesh could possibly have loved his followers who are in this world. He loved them to the end. And by the way, another translation of, of telos is with purpose. He loved them with purpose. And you, by the way, you don't want to use every possible meaning of a word and import it into every possible context, but I think it works pretty well here. He had loved them uh, up to this point, and he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. And every act of love was done with purpose, including this one, this feet washing. And so we can just go ahead and wipe away any thought that Jesus has some, this underlying motive, that he doesn't really care for the disciples. He, by the way, is trying to set an example for them, but even that example was an act of love to teach them to love one another. So in that moment, he's trying to build them up. He's trying to help them grow in their faith. Jesus 
is truly seeking their best interest. He is not putting on a mask of love. And so I ask you, what is your love about? Is your love genuine or are you usually just seeking your own? Are you kind to other people just so they will think you're kind? Or in order that that other person will be encouraged? Do you do acts of service so that maybe you'll get a kickback? Maybe that service will be reciprocal. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So I'm going to do this so that I'll get something out of you. Or is it just service to serve that person, to show them love? That they might be built up, or if they're not a Christian, that they might know Jesus. I mean, I have to ask myself this, and it's really quite convicting. I know I am guilty of disingenuous love, of flattery, of partiality, of loving, not out of a heart of, of seeking the interests of the other, but out of seeking my own interests. But that is not the way Jesus ever loved. Never once was his love disingenuous, and you can be sure about that. And we, in the same way, need to have genuine love. Now, it's, it's kind of hard because something like that, it's hard to just like turn that switch. Like, where does that come from? <laughs> where does it come from to, to not be seeking our own? Because, by the way, a part of the fall, our fallen nature, is that we are natural self Seekers. We are, we are, we are self-servers, right? I have no problem serving myself. None. Like, it, it never bothers me. It makes me quite happy. And that's my flesh. It is often hard for me to serve others, to seek their best interest, to go out of my way to help their way go better. <laughs> that's hard for me because I am a fallen human being. Redeemed as I am, I still struggle with this. And so... The question is, how can we even have this, this, this desire in us to seek the best interests of others, not our own, or even when it costs us, when it doesn't help our interests? Well, we see this with Jesus. Number two, Christian love is humble. So love is genuine, and love is humble. I think about um, this, this feet washing. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious and straightforward from reading the text how this is a humble task that Jesus did. But I really want to draw this out because I think it's just so important. In those days, foot washing was very important. I, one uh, theologian uh, said, by the way, foot washing is still important. Just so we're all clear on that. <laughs> Uh, so foot washing is still important for us today, even though we take baths, we wear socks, we wear closed-toe shoes most of the time, we have paved roads and sidewalks, we have carpet and wood in our houses or linoleum or whatever. They did not have any of those things in that day. People didn't wear socks, they had uh, sandals that they wore. They walked on dusty, dirty roads. They, by the way, didn't have cars, so they, they walked almost everywhere they went. Certainly the disciples did, and they, we know from the story they walked here. 
And so you have men who have been sweating, and then you wa- are walking on the dusty road, so the, the dust is sticking to it, and things are getting smelly because they probably haven't had baths in a while. And by the way, animals traveled these roads, and there was no cleanup crew, if you will, for the, the dropping. So I mean, you can't help but uh, uh, get some of that on you. And I mean, this is just gross. I'm not a feet guy, <laughs> so I mean, th- like this, this, is, this is rough for me. No matter how you cut it, their feet would have been disgusting. Now, another thing we need to know about their culture is, so they, they go in, up into this upper room to have this, this feast, to, to share the Passover feast. And, and you think, okay, so they went and they sat at a table. Well, I mean, there was a table, but it wasn't what we think of as a table. You know, we think of a table as, you know, three feet high or whatever, three and a half feet high. And then you got these chairs that you sit down, and so your feet are under the table. That is not what they had back then. They, that's their culture, they did not do tables like that. What they did was maybe a, a mat on the ground or possibly a little raised uh, platform about six, six inches. So their table was maybe six inches off the ground. And they, to, to sit at the table, there were no chairs. What you would do is you would lay kind of on your side with your feet in front of you and lean on one arm and then eat with the other arm. This is just, just what they did. They were used to that. And um, so you kind of do the math. You got uh, 12 disciples and then Jesus. You got 13 people around this, this table. And, and if you're, so you're leaning this way. Then you got the next disciple here, the next disciple here. Their feet are right next to each other's faces while they eat. These aren't our today semi-clean feet. These are dirty, disgusting feet. So they have a, kind of an issue here. And the way that they would normally handle this, by the way, is that the lowliest servant of the house would take a basin of water, just like Jesus did, take a basin of water, pour it into a bowl, wash the, the person's feet, then wipe it with a towel, and then they could go sit, eat their dinner, in semi-non-disgusting conditions. The problem is, as I told you before, well, first, I, d- I didn't tell you this part. This was a special meal. This is, by the way, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, we learned from the other Gospels. This was just for his disciples. Okay, so the, the, the master of the house, the guy who owned the house, he was not invited to this dinner. No servants were invited to this dinner. They were in the upper room, and they were there alone. So you don't have a servant to wash the feet. It's it's just us. You say, well, okay, well, I guess one of the disciples do it. As I told you before, Luke 22 tells us they have just been arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Which one of them is the most prominent? Which one of them them is most, most worthy of honor and dignity? And then dinner comes, oh, there's no servant here to wash our feet. Okay, well, I have just been telling these guys how great I am, how full of dignity and worth I am. I'm not about to go do the job of the lowliest servant. And that's what was going through their minds. I mean, truly, though, you think about it, these are the followers of the Messiah at the very least. One of them should have gone and washed his feet. But, I mean, is it so bad to wash even one another's feet? Fellow humans' feet? Fellow sinners' feet? But that's not what happens. None of them are willing to take up 
this, this role of servant, certainly not the lowliest servant, certainly not doing this menial, disgusting task. And then we need to get this, guys. This is just absolutely crazy. I, I hope that this doesn't just like go over your head when you read it, because we know the story. I'm going to read uh, verse 4 and 5 in just a second, but I want to remind you who Jesus is. This is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, eternally with the Father, came down. This is uh, the one who the Bible tells us is the creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe. All things hold together in him. So that means every breath the disciples breathe, every pump of their heart giving them life, comes from Jesus, who's sitting right there. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one promised ever since Genesis 3.15 to deal with Satan's sin and death. He is sitting there in the room, Lord of lords, King of kings, and then we see this, verse 4 and 5. I'm adding the word Jesus. Jesus rose from supper. So they'd started supper, okay? No one had gotten down and done it, and Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to do this. Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to, wa and to uh, wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I mean, I, if you don't think this is weird, I, I just go find another guy, if you're a guy or another girl, if you're a girl, and say, hey, I'm going to wash your feet today. See how it feels. I mean, it's hard, hard to even imagine doing that, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, if you're like a nurse or something, maybe that's more normal for you. But I mean, can you imagine the disciples' surprise when their master and Lord does this, their teacher and Lord does this? Can you imagine, though, the beauty of this moment? The king of the universe gets down, becomes subservient to sinners, undeserving, ill-mannered, proud, even though they have nothing to be proud of. He says, I'm going to serve them. The king becomes a servant, not just any servant, the lowliest of servants. This is mind-blowing. Too powerful for words what Jesus does here. The humility that it would take for him to do this. Then we read this in verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Try not to read into that a condemning, shaming tone. Do you remember what we read in that first verse, 
He had always loved them up to this point, and he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. Even these words, do you see what I've done for you? I am your master, I'm your teacher, I'm your Lord, and yet I have done this for you. He's not trying to shame them in, in in a hurtful way. He's not trying to jab them. He's not trying to knock them down. I mean, maybe trying to take their pride down a a notch, you know, pop that little balloon. But he's being loving to them. He says, yeah, you you, you call me these things, uh, teacher and Lord, and you're right. So I am. I am your teacher and Lord. I am the one of infinitely higher status and privilege. I am the CEO. I am the head. I, I, I am the, the most skilled one. I, I am the one just worthy of honor in every way. And yet I have gotten down and washed your feet. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Let me be very clear here, just be as plain as I can. No matter the difference between you In the next Christian, no matter the distance, whether that be your age, social status, your bank account, your intellect, your education, your looks, whatever the difference may be, the chasm is almost non-existent compared to the chasm of difference between you and God. You say, but but I'm the senior pastor of this church. I, I couldn't do this. I, I shouldn't have to, to get down and do that. I, I'm the father of this house. I shouldn't have to do that. I'm whatever you're saying. I'm better looking. She should have to do that. The God of the universe, the most beautiful, the most majestic, the most high and exalted, got down to the lowliest to serve sinners. And he says, Go and do likewise. So to say love is humble is to say, no matter what you think about yourself, it's, it's not impressive com- to, compared to God. It's good. Praise God for whatever uh, good things he's put in your life. But it is no reason not to become the lowliest of servants, doing the most menial of tasks. There's one more point I want to make here. and I'm just kind of tying this in here because there's, there's got to be a power for this humility. And I, I think we're already working on it. But you might say... But Jesus has never washed my feet. Yes, you're right. Jesus has never washed your feet. But do you realize that he has washed something far more foul, far more dirty? And that is your soul. And it was a far more disgusting, despised task that he did to to bathe your soul. We can kind of see this in the way he talks to Peter. See if I can find it real quick. Jesus says to him in verse 8, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, do not wash my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. I won't get into this too much today. I'll do this in a following week. But the, the, the washing of the feet wasn't the washing of regeneration. This was the washing of, of even though you're saved, you still get dirty, right? I still need to confess my sins daily. 
and be cleansed of unrighteousness. That, that's really what's going on with this feet washing. Because what Jesus says there is, you are already clean. I have already bathed you. I have already washed you. This is absolutely incredible. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Just let this hit you. I mean, this is all of us. It says, such were some of you, but this, I'm all of these things to, to, from one degree to another. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So what does that mean, I was washed? What I'm telling you is, just as Jesus took off his outer garments, the soldiers took off Jesus' outer garments later. The very next day, by the way. He didn't get to willfully take off his garments and lay them aside. They were taken off, then lots were cast for them. And we can talk about all the things that happened there, how low Jesus went willingly. By the way, I mean, I could bring angels, Jesus said, at, at the, at when he was arrested. I could bring a legion, 12 legions of angels, and, and there wouldn't be any problem here. Jesus is willingly bowing down to become this servant. Listen to this, I have Isaiah 53. I'm just going to pick, pick on some things here in Isaiah 53. He was despised. And rejected by men. The Lord of glory despised and rejected by men. Surely he has borne our griefs. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. However dirty Jesus got washing the feet of the disciples, it is nothing compared to the filth that was laid upon him while he was on the cross. It is nothing compared to the humility of hanging on that cross. He was made sin so that we sinners might become the righteousness of God. This is unbelievable. Humility, washing, and love. And so I want to, to finish like this. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. But I'm going to start at verse 5 and then come back to verse 3. Because I, I, I want this to, to have the punch, to see what's just happened here. And to see how this gives us the power to love one another genuinely and humbly. To seek the interests of others. So listen, to, listen here. Uh, so Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 is where I'm going to begin. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You, you possess the ability to have this mind if you are in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't cling to his status or rights as God. Verse 7 but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I could insert what we've been talking about. That death was, was bearing our filth for sinners like you and like me. And then we go back up to verse 3. Christian, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So be genuine. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us an astounding picture of love. You, God, are love, John tells us in his first letter. And so the love that you portray is always perfect. It is always the standard of what love ought to be. And God, we now recognize that you have loved all of us who have trusted in your name with that sort of love. You have loved all of us to the end, to the uttermost, with purpose in our lives, God. And God, I'm, I'm so sinful. I, I, I'm wishy-washy, I'm flaky, I'm distracted, and yet you continue to love me. God, you have washed me and all those who have trusted in you with the washing of regeneration through the Holy Spirit. You have cleansed our consciences. You have taken away the guilt, the shame. And God, you continually cleanse us, though we continually fail you. And you do that in love, because you love us to the end, to the uttermost, with purpose. So God, I pray that that would be the fuel that we need to have love for one another, that is genuine, not seeking our own interests, and that is humble, not worried about status or desert. Oh God, let us be better servants of one another. We need to love like the servant who is truly the king. And God, let us do this that we might fulfill the greatest tasks you give us of building one another up in love and by showing people this gospel that without it, they will spend eternity in hell. So let our love bolster our claim of faith as people see true transformation in our lives by just how radical and unearthly our love for one another is. And God, if there's anyone in this room who has not yet been washed, help them now to look to the cross and see it as a fountain, a fountain of pure, cleansing water, Lord, and let them run to it, that their sins might be forgiven, that their conscience might be cleared, 
that they can have new life, new desires, and eternity with you, Lord. Lead them to the cross where your love was put on display. Genuine, humble love from the God of glory. Save someone in this room today, Lord. Help them to to let go of their pride, let go of their sin, and take up the Savior, the true treasure. Lord, I pray all this in your Son's holy name. Amen.